Okay, here we are again on the Zelosophy Podcast. We got a great guest. Again, I know I say that every time, but it's true every time, and it's my show, so deal with it. David Brody is here with us today. He's a great local author. Um, his latest book is called Treasure Templari, and he writes about pre-Columbian history in a, in a fictional way, sort of in a Dan Brown style is the easiest way to describe it. I don't know if he likes that comparison, but he's listening to me, so I'm sure he'll tell me when we get on air if he doesn't. David's a very good friend of mine. He's like a brother to me, and uh, you'll hear us uh, rib each other pretty good on this show. It's all in good fun. Um, but his, I really do love his books. They're amazing reads, and I, you learn a lot. And the great thing is you never know where the history that he's researched ends and the fiction begins, and that's why it's fun. So we'll get into talking about that. Uh, you can check out all of his books at davidbrodybooks.com. That's uh, B-R-O-D-Y, davidbrodybooks.com. And uh, we'll do a couple of quick announcements, and then we'll get started with David. So the new show, Zelosophy TV with Uncle Z and Friends. Guys, episode one is just about done. We just had a meeting here at Lex Media, and I got some final notes. So over the weekend, I'll be doing the final cuts. And by uh, March 1st, March 2nd, we'll be launching the new show. So stay tuned on YouTube for that. And there's a GoFundMe page. You can go to GoFundMe and look up Zelosophy TV with Uncle Z and Friends. We can't do that show without your help. I hope you guys love the pilot and you'll love the episode, the first episode even more. Upcoming event appearances this Sunday, March 1st. Uh, so in a few days, because um, I'm probably going to air this episode today when I when we record it, I will be at the National Golf Expo at the Seaport World Trade Center, Boston, with Hardy from 98.5 The Sports Hub. You guys know Hardy from the Zolak and Bertrand show and the Sports Hub Golf Club seasonal show. He's a big Zelosophy on Golf fan. I haven't talked about Zelosophy on Golf for so long because I've been doing this podcast and the show. So I'm very excited to get back into that frame of mind. Uh, you're going to see uh, in Nashville on March 28th, uh, I believe I'll be at the Tennessee State Museum, although the venue is still pending. We're going to be doing a philosophy talk on harmony and how we use examples of musical harmony to build a harmonious society. There's no better place than Nashville to do that. That talk is sponsored by Delgado Guitars and Cremona Strings. Uh, so stay tuned as we get closer. I'll give you more details about that, but it's going to be a really fun event. All right. Coming right up, just after you hear some music, David Brody's going to be here, and we're going to get into some really interesting talks. Maybe it's not too late. Maybe okay, here we go, guys. Uh, we got David Brody here. Hi, David. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. Oh, look at you sounding all professional. And I know you're about to throw a nasty joke at me. So why don't you just hit me with it? I mean. Well, I, I am wondering why I get like the least important Zildjian to interview. So. Like, where, where's, the, where's the rest of the family? You know, you drew the short straw. No pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> um, it's funny, you know, uh, when I was out in L.A., I used to um, have some friends over to cook. And I'd make this like really simple dinners, chicken and rice pilaf and broccoli and stuff like that. And my friends would be like oh my God, you're the best cook I've ever met. I'm like, oh. I'm not even like the, in the top five of my family. They haven't, they haven't been invited to a family dinner yet. <laughs> no, they have not Janet, had yeah. Nan Aziz uh, cooking <laughs> at that point. Uh, so welcome. 
Thank how's, you. How's it going? What's going on? Oh, it's going. It's actually good to be out. I've been I'm deep into writing. Uh, what is the tenth book in the series? So I, you know, my rule. I write every day when I'm writing. Yes. So it's yes. nice to be let on. Start my on January first. Although you cheated this year I and cheated. you started early. I did. I, I also coach uh, high school softball, so I wanted to be done the first draft before the season. Starts. Oh, got it. And are uh, you on track for that? Yeah, it's going to be tight. <laughs> it's going to be close. So. Yes. Yeah, so. Um, I don't know where we should start, but you know what? I Actually, we talked a little bit before we went on air, and I'd like to start sort of by paralleling into the last episode, which was about ayahuasca and plant-based medicine and basically the truth of plant-based medicine that have been stripped out of society and hidden from us. And that's a great uh, transition into what we're going to talk about today because you, like Scott Walter, I should mention that I met you through Scott Walter, right. you dig up all these uh, historical artifacts that have been hidden for us that raise all kinds of questions about pre-Columbian history and were there Europeans and Westerners on this continent prior to Columbus, which all answers point to yes, but that's still not widely accepted or even it's only accepted in small groups at this point, right? Right. Well, you said something important, truth that's been stripped away. And so that's really what we're talking about here, whether it's um, religion or history, but the idea that you know that we have perfect knowledge. I think most of us are skeptical about that, and most of us realize that much of the history that we're taught, the history that we know, has been scrubbed and bleached and purified. Uh, same thing with religious history, whether it's history of uh, exploration of America or history of religion. And those of us who sort of look under the rocks and go into the dusty corners of of history and ferret around a little bit are finding more and more and. And you, you actually answered the question once that somebody had asked during one of my lectures, which is, you know, why should we care? Why do we care about this old history? And you had said, Michael, in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. And yeah. I, I think took, I, I've stolen that line. I use it a lot. Of I lectures. appreciate that you did, but I got to give you a quick dig there because that wasn't your talk. It was Scott's. It was Scott's talk. <laughs> That's right. <It> was. <laughs> but yeah. I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned it because I was going to mention that as well. I think it's important. That's why I like the discussion of ayahuasca and plant-based medicine. That's why when we, you and I first met at one of Scott's talks and we became close friends right away, and I told you and Scott soon after that that you guys were really important mentors to me in what I wanted to do with philosophy, which we're now seeing actually happen. And that was that you guys are digging up the truth about what has happened in the past that we've basically been lied to about. And what I wanted to develop with philosophy is the truth about where we go from here, the truth about who we are as a people, that we're all connected and we're all in this together. And I think that by knowing where we came from, that we can make more informed choices and decisions about where we're going. So Again, use the word truth. Yeah, um, and that it's. I love Oscar Wilde has a great quote at the beginning of one of my books, and he says that because um, a lot of this is is you know we're trying to ferret out the truth, but he says legend is more historical than fact because fact may tell us about one person, but legend tells us about a million people. Yeah, and it's the same kind of thing that these these legends that we hear, the oral histories, the the fables, the fairy tales, oftentimes they are shrouding a greater truth, a greater reality. Yeah, and and. Uh, and we need to sort of go back and find those things. Yeah, and I have a good friend, Michael Brown, who's a, a therapist and a past life regressionist. And I don't know if he took this from someone else, but I got it from him, so I'll credit him. He uh, often says that the, he always says that the truth is often stranger, stranger than fiction. Stranger than fiction, which is one of the reasons why people ask me all the time, why do you write fiction? I mean, you're writing about history and hidden history, but you write it as fiction. And, and I think 
a couple answers to that. One is I just think it's more um, it's more palatable to people to give them their spoonful of sugar with their medicine. People love history, but it's even more fun if you're on a roller coaster ride when you're For reading sure. about it. Um, but oftentimes you can do more with fiction because, as, as your friend said, truth is uh, stranger than fiction sometimes. So you right. can combine the two and really have a fun – uh, again, I like to say it's a it's a it's a roller coaster ride while you're learning about history. Yeah, which is why I love your books because one, I do like a spoonful of sugar with my history. <laughs> I, you know, uh, and and I like the fact that you're sort of you put a, the reader in this space where, you, like I said, you don't know where the the history ends and the fiction begins. So it's kind of it really makes you think a lot more than you just presenting the research that you gave. Right. So the the fictional story actually causes you to think about, well, what if, you know, as I was saying on the last podcast about ayahuasca, one of the questions I like to ask when somebody says something and your initial human reaction is, well, that can't be true. My analytical brain can't accept that. I always like to step back and go, but what if it were true? Right. This goes back to the analytical brain. You know, we all learned about the the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy when we were little, but we got (laughs) past that at some point. We grew up. Right. You and, know, Christopher Columbus in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. We all learned that in second yeah. grade. And and we have almost a visceral reaction about somebody coming in later on and saying, well, no, Columbus was late to the party. Right. You shouldn't. I mean, it's if you think about it, it makes perfect sense that he was not the first one here. But again, like the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny, it takes us a while to, to get past that visceral reaction about, wait a second. That may be the first time in history that Christopher Columbus was compared to the Easter Bunny. Yeah. So I think <laughs> I think we've done a new thing on the podcast. Congratulations. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, I've read a lot of your books. I've read Scott's books. I know you guys pretty well. And the historical artifacts and historical facts that you guys have dug up are pretty compelling. Uh, to me, there's no question that there were Europeans here before Columbus. Right. The, the it, question it, is more, well, what were they doing here? Yeah, well, that's where the fun <laughs> begins, yeah. And it's great to hear you say that because when, when Scott and I first met almost 15 years ago, not many people were on board with this idea that he was pushing and that I've pushed since that, that yes, there were Europeans here before Columbus. And, and just in 15 years, we've had um, – you know, a lot of people buying into that is becoming much more accepted. You see it a lot more on on History Channel, on Discovery Channel, on uh, much more fictional work done about it, doc- documentaries, whatever. But it's now becoming – we're slowly turning the ocean liner. It's becoming more and more accepted. Not 100 percent, but, yeah. uh, you know, the fact that even you would say that a, a decade ago, if you were interviewing me, you would not have said that. Right, right. Well, I might have because, you know, me and my big mouth, but (laughs) I would have been ridiculed for it. Whereas now it's sort of, again, similar back to the ayahuasca conversation. Ten years ago, uh, you know, if I was talking about that, if my friend Tony was talking about that, people would have been like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And it's the same thing here. People and, and you guys have been accused of being crazy. In fact, I shared a story, and I won't mention the guy's name. I don't even remember it. But the only time I've ever been attacked for my podcast or my book or now my TV show or speech, speeches, anything that I've ever done was by a guy. Oh, uh, the debunker, yeah. Yeah, the debunker yeah, that okay, yeah. that, atta- that follows Scott around just to debunk him. He's made a career just out of criticizing Scott. <laughs> yeah, which is an interesting way to make a living, but good luck with that. Um, so let's talk about some of your books. You want to start with Treasure Templari? Yeah, that's the last in the series, but basically they all um, they all track this whole idea that there were uh, waves of explorers who came across the Atlantic, and I focus in especially on a group, uh, the Outlaw Knights Templar. 
right. um, who uh, people may know the history. They were they were formed in the early parts of the 1100s as a group of Christian officially officially yeah. <laughs> it was a like the there. Masons were officially formed in 1733. Right. There's a there's a, there's a story behind the story, but officially in the early 1100s, some French noblemen um, got together to to protect pilgrims going to the Holy Land, and and for about 200 years. They found something while they were in Jerusalem in the early years, uh, uh, excavating under the Temple Mount. Uh, whatever that was that they found, we can get into that at some point. It was something really important, and they used that to leverage themselves into becoming an incredibly powerful and incredibly wealthy entity, the Knights Templar, for about 200 years. They were probably the most important entity or the most powerful entity in Europe uh, for that 200-year period. And then suddenly— They were the first bankers. They were the first bankers. They were amazing— um, uh, tradespeople. They had fleets of ship. Uh, 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 they were amazing. They learned a lot about medicine and architecture and As- lost knowledge. Astronomy. Astronomy. But yeah. this is the dark ages in Europe. And so yeah. the, 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 the uh, central part of the world for knowledge was the Middle East back then. It wasn't as we have today, Europe or, or the Western society, it was the Middle Eastern societies. And so the Templars left Europe and went to the Middle East and came back with all this great knowledge. But 200 including, years later- uh, Including chess. Chess, they brought exactly. chess to the they, West from the Middle East, they and they they actually the chess game. It's interesting because we can get into this, and I I'm sorry to cut you off when you were on a roll, but I find this story <laughs> fascinating. That they made the queen the most important piece on the chessboard. It was not that way before them. Exactly. So, and, uh, uh, and I know a lot of your books and what Scott uh, talks about is about venerating the divine feminine. Exactly. So you actually see it in that example that chess is the perfect example of these guys saying. The feminine is the most important piece here. Yeah. And again, why? Which is what we're, you know, yeah. what we're so talking that, about here. That, that's, a, that's a fascinating aspect of this. The other fun chess little piece of trivia is that when the Templars brought it back, the church was really upset. That how come there's no religious figure on the board? Because at the time, the bishop was a sailing ship moving diagonally across the board like a ship tacking into the wind. Mm-hmm. And the church said, well, we'll allow this if you give us a piece. And so the bishop became the, <laughs> the sailing ship became the bishop. So. And, and that's just one of the um, examples of the rocky relationship that the Templars had with, with the, the Roman Catholic Church right. specifically. They were, they were officially the army of the church. Uh, and that gets to the, the sort of the, the bookend of the 200-year period of their reign was on Friday the 13th of October, 1307. Unlucky Friday the 13th. Suddenly they were outlawed. The Pope and the King of France got together and issued a decree, a decree, and that was the end of the Templars. They were rounded up. They were uh, tortured. They were burned, burned at the stake. At the stake Their yeah. treasure disappeared. But for 200 years, early 1100s to early 1300s, they were incredibly powerful. Now, 1307, they get outlawed. Well, we know what happens when a government steps in and outlaws a group, much as the federal government did with the RICO statutes in the 1960s. The mafia disappeared completely. Of course not. That's not what happens. They go underground. (laughs) And so in this case, the Templars didn't disappear. They went underground. They reconstituted themselves. They went to different countries. They left. They they found safe haven in Scotland, and they reconstituted themselves Probably as as the Freemasons, yeah. And uh, and but they still had their treasures. They still had their secrets. They still had their their loyalty to each other. They still had their hidden knowledge. They still had their beliefs. Uh, what happened to all these items, these beliefs, these this culture, these treasures? Um, that gets us to what you know why they might have crossed the Atlantic in the late 1300s. The the vestiges of the outlawed Knights Templar crossing the Atlantic, and that brings us to America. 
um, with their secrets, with their treasures. Yeah, actually, uh, I'm going to strike what I said, and we'll go right into your first book, The Cabal of the Westford Knight, because that that story picks up right from there. Right. And your hypothesis in the book, and I've told you this, um, my I, I live my life a lot by intuition when I read. We've, you and I have talked about my BS meter, and you've told me things in the past where I've caught you like, I don't you think, I don't yeah, think you you're really me. giving me the full story there. <laughs> yep. And then you cop to it. And, and so with reading that, I think you're very close to the truth, which was that they came here to found the new world, which was a world that could be created, uh, again, on freedom of religion, where you're not, because they, I think part of the knowledge, and I don't know any of this from Masonry. In fact, my own research on reading books on the Knights Templar is one of the reasons why I became a Mason, because I figured, I, from what I was reading, there was something there. Um, but I believe that they knew the knowledge of real pure Christianity, which was stripped out in 325 in the Council of Nicaea by the Roman Catholic Church, where they got rid of the Book of Mary and the Book of Thomas, and God knows, literally, what else, what else? they what else they took out of the Bible. And so we've been living for two, almost 2,000 years on some sort of bastardized version of Christianity. And I think whatever they found, and this is just my belief, my guess, I don't have any facts to back this up, that they... They knew the, what the real pure Christianity was about, and of course the church couldn't let that get out because the church reconstituted Christianity specifically so that they could be in power. Some people think that the Roman Empire fell and just reconstituting—talking about going underground and reconstituting yourself. Some people think that the Roman Empire reconstituted itself as the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah, you make a couple of really great points, the major one being that that— Christianity was sort of scrubbed and bleached and changed, and and it was uh, it became an institution as opposed to a true the true teachings of Jesus, yeah, which were then, then three almost three hundred years old at that point. Right. Yeah. Um, and so these guys come here, and in your your book, the first book of the series is the Cabal of the Westford Knight by David S. Brody, um, where these this group of Templars lands here right down the street in Westford Mass. Right. They come up the Merrimack River. And what's and and again, um, so the idea, the concept that you're trying to put forth in this book was that they were coming here to found this new world where they could, everybody could be equal and could be free and could live a pure version of Christianity or whatever religion because they they found a lot of commonalities in pure Christianity with what the natives had here because there was a lot of nature involved in it. Yes, yeah, so, so let's set the stage a little bit. So we've got yeah. these Scottish explorers coming over here in the late 1300s, and the natives are an important part of this. Obviously, at, at that point, the natives were sort of welcoming for trade, and, and, and as long as you came over with good intentions, they would welcome you. So right away, there had to be, as you said, some kind of commonality between the Native Americans and these uh, outlawed Knights Templar. And, and there was. The, the, the Native American um, sources that we have, the tribal chiefs that, are, that we talk to still to this day, verify that this, this happened. That Prince Henry Sinclair is the guy's name. He was a Scottish nobleman uh, who ruled um, in the area around Edinburgh today, but also in the northern part near the Orkney Islands, that he, uh, with a fleet of ships, came over in 1398, 1399. Um, basically following the path that the Norse had taken hundreds of years earlier. Leif Erikson had, had taken these same journeys across the North Atlantic, island hopping from Iceland to Greenland, across to Labrador, down to Newfoundland, and then further down to Nova Scotia and and uh, into the Maine and further down probably into New England, Cape Cod and Narragansett Bay. 
But yeah. so um, speaking of Narragansett Bay and tribal chiefs, shout out to Black Eagle, Black Eagle, our I mean, friend who's a yeah, tribal chief yeah, you, down you, there who has confirmed a lot of this. Right, he's us. confirmed a lot of this, and, and again, the the Native American oral history on this. You know, we're we're sort of biased against oral history. We like our history to be written because that's our society. But the Native American culture is to pass these things down as sacred knowledge, and they pass it down verbally, generation right. to generation. so that it can never be destroyed, because you think about, again, going back to the Council of Nicaea, when they got rid of, they scrubbed the, the books that were in the Bible, they destroyed most of every, most of them. But fortunately, uh, who knows if they were early versions of Templars or some other a secret order, were able to save certain copies, and the Book of Mary was actually discovered in a couple of different places throughout the world. Um, that's but, a that's an important point, Michael. Because what what you know, we we tend to think of oral history. We all played that game as first graders when we were six years old at a birthday party, where we sit in a circle and somebody whispers something into the next person's a ear. Telephone and a, game. Telephone game. And by the time it comes all the way around, it's totally bastardized. It's totally messed up. And I actually had somebody at a lecture say, "Well, you can't really trust Native American history. It's like that telephone game when you're in first grade." And I said, well, no. First of all, these are not six-year-olds. And second of all, this is sacred knowledge. They don't they don't blurble it out like giggling. They pass it down very carefully. Right. And it, it just shows your cultural bias when you say stuff like that. So right. they, they, they maintain this history. And cultural ignorance, really. Cultural ignorance. And again, they're, according to Black Eagle and also according to the Mi'kmaq elders up in Nova Scotia, this... Prince Henry Sinclair really did come. The vestiges of the Knights Templar in the late 1300s. That's part of both tribes' oral history, and and what we found, and this is part, this is where the research gets really interesting, is they left evidence. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I like to say that as a lawyer, and we won't hold that against you. Yeah, and as a lawyer, I like to say <laughs> I don't normally care about things like the truth, right? You know, that's, that's always, that always gets a good laugh at my lectures. But as a as a as a amateur historian and as a fiction writer. Uh, this stuff keeps me up at night. I'm, I'm I'm really obsessed with with finding out what really happened hundreds of years ago. You know, did it really happen? Can we prove it? And it really comes down to evidence. And so we have, uh, you know, carvings and stone and, and and stone towers and and inscriptions on stone. And we have you know eight or ten really solid pieces of evidence um, that it's hard to explain those away. And then the other part of that, again, looking at it from an evidentiary point of view, um, we were taught in law school that once you've come up with a theory of your case, you have to use all the evidence that's on the table in front of you. You can't just pick and choose. You can't just, you know, I like to say when when I used to play softball in the men's league that if we didn't count the times that I hit pop-ups, my batting average was like 700. (laughs) But we're just going to exclude certain pieces of evidence that I don't like. Yeah, Which seems to be the way society is going now, right? It's like, I found my truth. Okay, but there's no such thing as your truth. There's the truth, and that's it. (laughs) We need to use all the evidence. And then once you have your theory, this is where we were 12 or 14 years ago, Scott and I, we had a theory about what we think happened then new evidence comes in the door over the next decade. And the test is, does that evidence corroborate what we thought had happened or were we wrong and we have to change our theories? It just turns out in this particular case, every piece of evidence that's come in has been spot on supporting pretty much what we thought. Yeah, And And that tells you you're on the right track. And you have people that are like, and I'm not picking on anyone specifically, but you have people like archaeologists or certain religious groups that say, well, that doesn't fit into what we believe, so it's not true. Well, let's pick on the archaeologists. Let's, yeah, let's, sure. Let's pick on them. I'd love to. <laughs> because, because, I mean, no group of professionals in, in society is wrong more often than the archaeologists. I mean, we all learned in school 
that civilization began, quote unquote, civilization began in Mesopotamia at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers 6,000 years ago. We all learned that in high school. Yeah. Well, it turns out they were wrong by a factor of two. It wasn't 6,000 years ago. It was 12,000 years ago. Right. We know that from a site called Gobekli Tepe in Turkey now. So right. they weren't just wrong by a little bit. They were wrong by <laughs> by full 6,000. It wasn't 6,000. It was 12,000. And then similarly, the whole— What about the—isn't the Sphinx one of those things, too? The Sphinx, I mean, that, that whole thing, I mean, that's a whole other podcast discussion. Yeah, we'll sure. We won't get into that. But the idea that— Again, the Native Americans coming across the Bering Land Strait, oh, yeah, that was twelve or 13 or 15,000 years ago, but no one was in North America before that. Well, wrong. There's evidence of, of humans being in North America for tens of thousands of years before that. So, again, they were wrong by a factor of at least two. The problem with archaeologists is they – they will only look at evidence that comes out of the ground. You know, the expression, to a man with a hammer, the whole world's a nail. To an archaeologist, if it wasn't dug up by a trowel, then it doesn't count as evidence. And as a lawyer, it really offends me. There's plenty of other different ways to, to look at, to prove history, whether it's geology, whether it's cartography, whether it's chemistry, like carbon dating. There's dozens of different fields that we can use that add to our knowledge. But in the archaeological community, if it wasn't out of an archaeological dig, it doesn't count. And when you think about the minuscule amount of land that is subjected to an archaeological dig. I mean, how many people do you know have an archaeological dig in their neighborhood or even in their town? The answer is very few. And yet we're going to let this this micro piece of evidence determine everything. It's just ridiculous. So the archaeology, you got me going on the archaeology. Yeah, no, I'm it's glad just, I did. It's I, just, I love it when you get fired it, up <laughs> and it's not directed at me. It's <laughs> but just I, I'm glad you I mean, said that. They have because something to add, but they, we, we can't let them have the final word on, it, uh, on exactly. everything. It's and, and I think you said that at one of your talks recently, and that really stopped me in my tracks. I think it's when you came to our lodge uh, last, which yes, was a few yes. months ago. It was in October. Uh, right near October 13th, actually, which, by the way, to go back to that is when 13 became an unlucky number exactly. because of that thing. It's actually a very lucky number if you do historical research on religion and spirituality and mystics. Everybody thinks 13 is a lucky number. But anyway, but what you said about the archaeological thing really made me stop and think. I've never seen an archaeological dig. And we live in the area where the Revolutionary War started. Exactly. You would think you'd see them regularly. And right. I, I get they're expensive. I get they're intrusive. I get all that. But we, you know, we find stuff that we think might be important to this discussion, this pre-Columbus history. And we'll call an archaeologist and say, will you come out and do a dig? And they say, well, we're not going to do a dig because we don't believe this really happened. And it becomes like a circular <laughs> reason. Well, but then you tell me we, it's circular. You tell me it didn't happen because we can't prove it. But then you won't come out and dig because you know it didn't happen. Right. So we just go around in a big circle and finally just say, screw you guys. You know, we'll go find it ourselves. Yeah. And so that first book and one of the really important artifacts that was found by here is something called the Westford Knight, where there's an effigy of a someone that looks very similar to a Knights Templar knight carved into the bedrock in Westford, Massachusetts. Right. Why don't you tell, you've become sort of one of the uh, most knowledgeable people in the world about that specific artifact. Right. So, my, so about that? we raised our family in Westford, so we spent 20 years there. And so I did spend a lot of time studying that artifact. And as you said, it's an effigy of a, of a medieval knight. It's clearly his his battle sword carved into the into the rock ledge and 
And based on the geology we've been able to do on that, it's some kind of at least hundreds of years old. But the idea is that Henry Sinclair and his group came over here up the Merrimack River, as you said, uh, climbed the, the highest hill in eastern Massachusetts, which happens to be in Westford. And while climbing that hill, one of the party, we think his name was Gunn, G-U-N-N, died. And then as was the custom in medieval times, the group carved an effigy uh, as to, to memorialize his death and, and buried him nearby. And that effigy is what we still see today in Westford. And that's what I went up to, you know, I climbed that hill 15 years ago when I first started looking at this just to see what there was. And again, it gets back to evidence. If that journey really did happen, Sinclair's journey, there should be other pieces of evidence. And it turns out there's a lot of other pieces of evidence. There's another carving about a mile downstream in Westford, again, with a medieval boat on it. And we sent that carving out to Minnesota because that was on a, on a boulder that we could actually pick up and move, whereas the Westford night carving is into the rock ledge and is part of the earth. We can't take it and move it. But we sent that to Scott Walter's lab, lab in Minnesota. Scott's a geologist, as you mentioned. And we asked him to do a weathering analysis on the carved areas of that stone. And his conclusion was that those carved areas had been in a weathering environment for about 600 years. In other words, the carving was about 600 years old, which is perfect if you do the math to the year 2000, go back yeah. 600 years, right around the year 400, 1400. So, you know, that's some science. And again, the, the, the archaeologists don't like that kind of science. It's not – it didn't come out of the ground. But it's it's hard science. It's geology. Right. Um so, again, there's other artifacts. Probably the most important other artifact is something called the Newport Tower, which is a whole other fun conversation. But in Newport, Rhode Island, there's a, there's a tower on top of the highest hill in town. And it, if you were to see it in Europe, you'd have no doubt that it's medieval. It's built in the Romanesque style on eight pillars. And um, it's a really cool-looking uh, piece of architecture, but it looks nothing like anything the colonists would have built during the colonial time periods. And yet... The mainstream historians will tell us that it was built as a colonial windmill, even though every time you mention it to a structural engineer, they just laugh. They, they guffaw and they say there's no way that could work as a windmill. The lateral forces would make that thing tumble on the first heavy wind. And yet despite that, we still call it a windmill, and yeah. it's not. And, and so, there's now um, some uh, ast- astronomical evidence, uh, astrological evidence, I should say, that that there's something else going on with that tower. As we know, the, the keystone illuminates on the winter solstice every year. Right. So you're right. Astronomical. Which, so you were right. Uh, astronomical. Yes, so it so ties back into, again, you know, so why why did that happen? And why is that such an important date? And, and what I've learned from hanging out with you and Scott is I've, over the last four or five years where I've been friends with you guys, I now know, to me, the winter solstice is my Christmas and New Year all rolled it's into one. Great weekend, yeah, it's a great weekend. <laughs> that's that's the real holiday, right? It's the 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 death of the old year and the birth of a new year, and that's what they were celebrating. But why? How did they create that so that that illuminates perfectly on that day, and why? Right, and so what you're saying is that just to make sure the listeners understand, the tower has a fabulous illumination once a year on the winter solstice where the sun comes through one of the oddly shaped windows and it creates a light box that creeps across the inside of the tower and right at nine o'clock in the morning at the monastic time for prayer that light box illuminates an egg-shaped keystone there's only one keystone of the eight arches only one of them has a keystone like this and that one illuminates and basically what it is it's an allegorical symbol of rebirth where the male which has historically been associated with the sun comes in through the aperture 
and it illuminates, it fertilizes the egg on the inside of the round tower, the womb of the tower, marking the rebirth of the year. The sun starts to get brighter, the days start to get longer, we have rebirth again, but that's what that tower does. Clearly, that's not something that the, the Puritans <laughs> would have done um, in, the, in the late 1600s, where some people think this was built um, by, the, by, the, by the Puritan era colonists. You know, that's not the type of allegory that they would have celebrated. They would have been uh, ridiculed for that. Right. And, and again, it, it starts to allude to the, the divine feminine of these, what we think the Templars built this. There's other people with other... Um, theories, but you know, to me, I, none of them make any sense. And one of your other books I should mention is the Cult of Venus, which is all about um, the divine feminine and how right. that's been stripped out of society. And and really, a big reason it's the reason why that story is really important. Even the fictional version of it that you made is that there's a reason why the world is so out of balance right now. It's become very patriarchal over the last two thousand years, and we're out of balance. That's exactly right. And I think getting back to the Knights Templar and what they discovered in the Middle East that caused them to butt heads with the church, the patriarchal church, was this whole idea, like you just said, Michael, that the feminine is important, that that any organism requires balance in order to be healthy. So the, the human organism requires a, a male influence be balanced by a female influence. And, and the Templars understood this. And the patriarchal church wanted nothing to do with it. So the Templars, that's why we find so much of the, what the Templars did was that they did venerate uh, the feminine, whether it be the Virgin Mary, who was one of their, their main objects of veneration, or more subtly, Mary Magdalene and the concept of her being uh, a partner to Jesus. Again, the, if Jesus is going to rule, he needs the feminine influence as well as the masculine. Right, and there's a lot of even the, the the church has now gone back on its findings or whatever, saying that 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 Mary was actually an, a, one of the apostles. They've actually finally admitted that. Finally, they, yes. they haven't gone so far as there's a lot of other research out there that points to not only was she that she was his most important apostle, and she was his life partner, and they may have even had offspring, which you would be familiar with that. Theor- theoretical storyline, if you're familiar with the Da Vinci Code and the Jesus and Mary bloodline and, and, and that sort of thing. Right. And one of the really interesting things about um, my research journey myself was I was researching the Prince Henry Sinclair, who, uh, you know, who led the journey across in 1398, 1399. So I started looking more closely at his family on the European side just to see, you know, what, what they were all about. And it turns out it's the Sinclair family that his grandson, Henry's grandson, who built Roslyn Chapel, which is the famous chapel in the Da Vinci Code story. This is where Sophie, the the girl, learns about her true identity, her true last name, Sinclair slash St. Clair, and this is the family chapel. So to the extent that there really is a Jesus bloodline, most researchers believe it is the Sinclair family. So here's our guy coming across the North Atlantic in the 1300s with all these Templar secrets and this treasure and whatnot. Well, it turns out it's the same people that Dan Brown was writing about in his book. So, you know, it's not just a cool history story on our side. It also ties back into the religious side and what was going on in Europe at the same time period. Yeah, and I haven't been to Roslyn Chapel. It's near the top of the list of the places I want to see. But all the people that have done research there say that there's so much symbology that it, it takes weeks and months to soak yes. it all in. And 
we don't know, you know, again, in the, in the Masonic way or in the Templar, uh, Templar way, we don't know really what all those symbols mean and how they add up together and what the, what the deciphering of the messages that they left in that specific building seems to be one of the more important buildings uh, in the Western world in terms of lost knowledge and lost truth. Very much so. And, and one thing that we do know that they make very clear at Roslyn Chapel, there's, a, there's an informational sign that talks very matter-of-factly about how Prince Henry Sinclair, the grandfather of William Sinclair, who built the chapel, went across the North Atlantic in 1398 and 1399, and he came back with uh, North American aloe, North American maize, which is corn, uh, North American flour called the trillium, and he brought samples back, and his grandson, as a shout-out to Grandpa, carved those uh, those crops, those plants, into the ceiling and walls of the chapel as decorative features. How how would William possibly have known in 1456 about North American plants unless his grandfather really had gone across and brought them back with him? But the chapel talks about this very matter-of-factly. You know, we're still talking about it here on across the pond here in, in, in America that this is... A theory. A theory or it's legend. But <laughs> right. again, over in Scotland, I had a very funny conversation with a Boston Globe reporter about a year and a half ago who had just come back from Scotland, and he called me up breathlessly and said, do you know that Roslyn Chapel talks about this Prince Henry Sinclair stuff like it's real? And I said, oh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah. So he did a whole story for us about it, but... Uh, again, it's 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 taking a while to turn the ocean liner, but we are making good headway on this. As I said earlier, 10 or 12 years ago, um, interviewers like yourself probably would not have said to me that it looks like you have enough evidence to prove your case. Yeah, I think that um, there's, you know, you're right, the ocean liner is turning. There seems to be across the board in the Western world sort of an awakening happening, albeit slowly, but... Like we talked about at the beginning, 10 years ago, a lot of this stuff was way more controversial than it is now. And when you think about historically, religiously, medicinally, there's tons of stuff out there that people are starting to realize that we've been lied to about. And we want to know what the truth is so that we know what to do next, right? That's what this is all about. It, it, it goes back to what we started the conversation with, truth. I mean, you know, we we all, I think, as— just as human beings are curious about our past, but we also are, are uh, don't take it well when we feel like the authorities are keeping the truth from us right. for any reason. And I think that's that's where some of the the anger in current society comes from. And you know, you see all these conspiracy theories and whatever. And I'm not a big I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. I, people assume that I probably am because I happen to. Be. Meanwhile, you guys can't see this, but he's wearing a tinfoil hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I agreed to only do a radio interview. I don't do television interviews. <laughs> um, but well, they yeah. always said you had a face for radio. I, I, that, that is very true, very true. So, now I've lost my train of thought. Oh, you were talking about you're not a conspiracy theorist. I'm, gen- I'm generally not. People assume that, you know, that, that because I happen to believe in this um, – this area of history that is considered uh, fringe history that I must also believe in, you know, in, in aliens and that 9-11 didn't really happen. And, and no, I, 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 don't, I don't have to feel strongly about any of that stuff. I just happen to feel strongly about this particular thing. Yeah. I just happen to believe that, you know, just as the Norse had come over in the early 11th century, they knew their way across the Atlantic. There were good reasons to come, whether it was trading with the natives or fishing or harvesting timber. Uh, there was, a you know, 
if if you were part of if you weren't the oldest son primogenitor if you weren't the oldest son of a European noble family you really didn't have any great prospects in Europe so why not go across the Atlantic they knew how to get there they had boats to do it there were good reasons to come to me it would have been much more surprising if for 500 years nobody came after the Norse did that it is surprising that there were waves of explorers like Prince Henry Sinclair who did come. To me, it's just a human condition. We all grew up watching Star Trek, you know, to, to boldly go where no one has gone before, to seek out new life and new civilization. As kids, that was, you know, it was one of my favorite shows, but it always struck me that, of course, if people in Europe at the time knew that there was a land of plenty across the Atlantic, they knew how to get there, and they had the boats allowed them to do that, of course some of them are going to make the journey. So you're saying you're not a flat earther. <laughs> uh, well, I think that, that area of the, of the Atlantic is still flat. I'm worried about the, the uh, sea monsters at the end. And so. uh, but I can actually corroborate your uh, story there because, you know, many uh, – to me, I think that there is something that ties into all of this and it all fits together somehow and I'm not sure how with – the alien part of the story and, and extraterrestrials and the, this planet being seeded. But every time I bring that up, you kind of slough it off, not in a, in a, uh, in a well, I don't want to hear about that way, but just like, I, I don't care about that. That's not where my focus is. That's not where my focus is. So, uh, But I think even in Rosalind Chapel, if you see the columns in Rosalind Chapel, there are people that say that the columns show a DNA-like pattern, which again, I think is part of the story that, that they would have known from the ancient mystery schools of Egypt and even before that. And again, this is just my belief. I'm not saying you believe this or anybody else does or should, but that, you know, there's a whole part of history that's also missing called the missing link. Well, we went from primates to conscious human beings all of a sudden, and nobody knows how or why. Well, there are theories that we were, that the primates were seeded with a certain DNA code from elsewhere in the universe. And that's how we made that leap. Maybe that is part of the story. But every, like I said, every time I bring that up, you say, I don't need aliens for my story. And I actually right. respect that you're not dragging that into it because it would only bring more ridicule to your doorstep and more people trying to debunk the good work that you're doing. Right. So there's an old expression that um, you know your, your, your argument's only as strong as the weakest link in your chain. You've heard yeah. that, I'm sure. So, Well, right. I've heard, I hear it from you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. I, 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 that, that's like a separate um, – it's a whole separate area of study, and I totally respect people who are looking into that because I think yeah. you're right. You know, what, what, we, what we don't know is, you know, it's the whole classic tip of the iceberg. What we don't know is much vaster than what we do know. For sure. Um, and the idea that we're, we've arrived at the level of perfect knowledge in the year 2020 is just ridiculous. Right. Um, <laughs> but like you said, it, it just muddies the in water. In some ways, we, we, many believe, and I'm one of them, that we have less knowledge than we've ancient regressed. people deal. Yeah, the ancient people. One thing that I will say is I do believe that the ancient people were much more civilized and much more sophisticated and technologically advanced than we give them credit for. Yeah. And, and whether and that's one, from aliens or not, I don't right. know. Right. And one of your books is Echoes of Atlantis. And there's right. a whole storyline about that that, you know, again, it's like this thing that there's these legends, but something to it. Was it, was it, I forget, I always mix it up. Was it Plato or Socrates that Plato. wrote about Plato that Plato. wrote about Atlantis? So we right. have an actual writing that he knew about this place. And not only did you know, the thing that really got me going on Atlantis was he actually um, had, had talked to, um, priests from, uh, you know, uh, I forget where they were from, but uh, people who should have known about these things. He's got his his sources. But they dated 
Atlantis to 11,600 years before present, before today. Obviously, mm-hmm. when it was Plato's time period, it was different before present, but essentially sure. it equates out to 11,600 years ago. Well, that happens to coincide exactly with something called the end of the Younger Dryas period, where some kind of cataclysmic event, a comet, a meteor, something hit the Earth and created this the end of the Ice Age. It's exactly what was described by Plato as causing the end of Atlantis. It also coincides with that site in Turkey that you mentioned that somehow was born mysteriously buried. It seems like, I don't know if there's uh, even archaeological facts to back this up, but it seems like that site was just instantly, almost instantly buried and because of the way it was preserved. Right. That was buried a little later, but it was born. The earliest ones are 11,600 years ago. So we have this confluence of Gobekli Tepe forming, almost like a civilization had been wiped out and, and, they, were, and they were building this as a way to, to appease their gods because they were afraid the gods were going to do it again to them. So they've <laughs> right. recovered. Uh, you know, a couple of years later, they said, we got we to we build a monument to the gods. But Plato somehow, and there's really no way he could have known this, he got the date exactly right. It's 11,600 years ago. Mm. Like, what, that, what are the odds on getting that date exactly right? He had no way of knowing that was really the end of, of, of the Younger Dryas Ice Age period. So when, when I saw that, I said, okay, well, he, you know, he's not exactly uh, a, a lightweight when it comes to intellectual intellectualism or, or, yeah, or right. ancient knowledge. I mean, it's Plato, for God's sake. Right, yeah. So maybe we he's should listen. He's a pretty credible source. <laughs> we should listen, maybe. And then it turns out there's a lot of other sort of pieces of evidence that indicate that sometime around that time period, there was a sophisticated group of of, of people living probably along the mid-Atlantic Ridge where we think Atlantis might have been. And then some people say to me, well, could they have been aliens? And I say, well, I don't think we need aliens. I think, right. I think just as today we still have segments of society, people living on planet Earth who are still hunter-gatherers, who are living no differently than they lived 50,000 years ago. There's a tribe off the coast, on an island off the coast of India, who apparently just within the last decade discovered the causal relationship between uh, sex and procreation. They had, they had never figured it out. They just finally figured it out. But they're living no different than they lived 50,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So if we have that in some segments of society, can't we have the opposite, the bell curve, that says maybe 15,000 years ago there was a really sophisticated, civilized group of humans way ahead of, way ahead of everybody else instead of way behind everybody else. Yeah. And maybe they, because of their climate, they had advantages over other humans that allowed them to trade. And then trade gave them leisure time to explore science and technology. And you know how, t- how, how societies grow that way, how they, yeah. how they, how, how they advance themselves. And when maybe there was... When you're not struggling to survive, then you're able to you have, you have leisure But there's time. also people, and again, I, I agree with you, you don't need aliens to sort of get to a thing that there was something there with Atlantis. But there are a lot of people that believe, and I just read this other great book um, called The Atlantis Legacy, um, that the theory in that book was that there was... It really was an advanced society, and it it actually interacted with alien beings and the galactic community. And because of the technology and knowledge and power being misused, there was a giant cataclysm on this planet, which shifted the poles on the planet and caused the cataclysm. And the reason why now we still don't have hard evidence or facts that there's this galactic community out there is because 
we we haven't proven that we can get along well <laughs> enough with ourselves, let alone with – and again, it's like one of those things, what if it were true? Um, it would make sense that until we learn to get along with each other here on this planet, why would they let us be part of a, right. a universal community when we're just a bunch of people that are destroying each other and the, and the planet? But one of the things, aside from all that, one of the things that I really liked as a piece of evidence you used in the book – was that um, the butterfly migration. <laughs> right. So there's butterflies and there's also eels, but both of them have um, these, these migratory patterns that, that the, the butterflies, uh, they're a, monarch, a, a breed of monarch butterflies. So they're living along the northern coast in Venezuela of South America. They, um, every year they fly out uh, over north uh, into, the, into the Atlantic Ocean and basically circle around looking for some kind of ancient place to land until eventually, out of exhaustion, they just fall into the ocean. And essentially what this is is this, this instinctive urge to return to their homeland, to their to their ancient site of whatever was there, probably some kind of land above the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And, and similarly, eels, both on the uh, European side and on the American side, uh, come down out of the out of the lakes and and freshwater lakes on both sides down the rivers and they and they congregate out in the uh, in the middle of the Atlantic again um, as if historically that's where they were from again they're freshwater eels going back through the ocean saltwater to to what we think is probably at one point some kind of freshwater habitat in the in the middle of the Atlantic so yeah. there's there's again the archaeologists want us to find evidence in the earth but sometimes things like biology can explain help yeah. us explain well things. that's why I that's why I bring it up because I thought that was one of the more out of all the books of yours that I've read and I've read not all of them but maybe four or five of them I thought that that was the most interesting because there's some sort of biological evidence as you said we don't know if they're looking for an ancient land right we don't know what motivates the all of these monarch butterflies but it certainly raises an important question what the heck are they doing doing? flying out to the middle of the ocean and dying there right the survival instinct (laughs) we've always been taught is the strongest instinct but apparently for these butterflies there's something even stronger this 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 instinct and all animals have it to go back you know the reason birds fly whatever fly south in the winter this instinct to go migrate or return to their to their ancient habitat seasonally yeah and the and the butterflies seem to want to go back to this what used to be a landmass right where we think Atlantis was yeah so i'm jumping around on all sorts of topics sure. just cuz you have so many books and that i love and i want people to just get a taste of it so they can go pick the one i want to go back to where we started which is your most recent book treasure templari where you talk about this painting the ghent altarpiece and and we know from historical facts that the nazis stole this painting right this is and, if, and if, that there's a panel missing which many people think so what you talked about the Templars, a lot of people think that one of the things they found uh, under King Sol- the ancient site of King Solomon's temple was the Holy Grail. Yes. But a lot of people think that it's not what we were raised to think it was, that this, this cup or whatever, this chalice, that it was some sort of technology. It could, it and, then, and that's in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? When they're looking for the Holy Grail, this technology burns the Nazis when they're looking for the Ar- it. The Ark of the Covenant burns the Nazis, yes. Yeah, the Ark so, of the Covenant, yes. right. So. Um, and, and another movie that is similar to my book is is The um, the Monuments Men with uh, Matt oh, right. Damon and right. George Clooney where that, that, that Ghent altarpiece painting you mentioned is what 
what what the Nazis steal to begin that movie, and the and the monuments men eventually recover it. But the idea is that Hitler first Hitler's obsessed, and and this is true, was obsessed with with the occult and with finding this technology that he believed was part of the Holy Grail. He wanted to weaponize the Holy Grail, and he was convinced that the the Templars were the custodians of this technology, and that the painting. Was a, was a secret map leading to the hiding place of this holy grail, this technology that he wanted to use to weaponize to win the war. So he sent his guys, his goons up to, to Europe as soon as the war began, as soon as he took over Belgium, he sent his, his goons up to Ghent in Belgium to get this painting and brought it back. But there was one panel missing about five years before the war, this one panel that was supposedly the, the panel that was the key to the map went missing. And one of the theories is that the local Freemasons, knowing that Hitler had his eyes on it, took it and 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 hid it so he would never get it. Right. But to this day, it remains unfound. No right. one's ever found that. And so, uh, but the the book is the, my book is triggered by this whole idea that that this this painting was a secret map to the Holy Grail, the Templar treasure. You know, what is the treasure if it's not the Holy Grail? Like you said, is it technology? Is it the chalice? Is it the the Arma Christi, which is like the the crown of thorns and the and the cross and the and the lance, but Hitler believed these were magical uh, devices that again he wanted to weaponize. Yeah, them. and and you weave it into this incredible story where you have, uh, you know, these modern Nazis that are underground uh, trying to get this technology. You have, um, you have these um, Israeli operatives that are looking for it as well. And your theory in the book. Which I think, again, you might be right. You might have guessed right, is that the technology was the um, sort of using water to create energy. Right. There's a lot of fascinating thing, you know, fascinating theories about the uh, the pyramids. You know, what what was what was the original uh, uh, purpose for the pyramids? And one of the possibilities is that they were used. Uh, they were taking salt water. And and using salt water to create energy, and I'm right. not going to get into that right now. But you know, if that if that could be rediscovered, if that technology could be rediscovered. But if you look at the footprint of it, not only does it perfectly match the footprint of Orion's belt, but it also, if you take a above ground, high above ground look at that complex, it looks like a circuit board. Yes. Yes. So you know, the, uh, that can't be a coincidence. <laughs> right. And, 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 and there's, there's, there are things, you know, there's, there's the, the way the, the, the tunnels flow through the pyramids. I mean, there's something going on there. It almost looks like a hydraulic works in many ways. But yeah. one of the theories is that it was an ancient, uh, that they, the, the Egyptians had discovered how to take salt water and basically make it burn. I'm not going to get into the, to, the, to the chemistry of it, but burning salt water. So think about how that would change the world today if all of a sudden we didn't need oil, we just needed salt water. Yeah, we had all the renewable. I actually had this weird thought the other day. I, was, I don't know why I was thinking about this. Maybe it's because I knew you were coming here. But I was thinking like, God, we would just – would we just deplete the ocean completely if, that were, if we found <laughs> out that that was an actual real technology? Would we be that – ridiculous and, and and burning up resources on the earth that we would actually kill the ocean? I mean, we're already killing the ocean. Yeah, interesting <laughs> question. And, and, and just, um, you know, disclaimer, we get into real trouble if I start talking too much about sciences, okay? So we, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I'm okay on the history side. But Our, archaeologists are fine, but we don't want to attack scientists. Well, I, 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 can't, I can't speak to science very well since I, I'm not a scientist, but... Um, uh, so again, I highly recommend that book. It's a fascinating story. There's, as all of them are, um, there's a lot of it's called te- 
treasure templari. And there's a lot of um, interesting information there. Again, you talk about the hidden templar seals and some of the pagan symbolism that they use and the symbolism of duality, again, of balance, of male and female. And that's, that's a theme that goes through all my books, Michael. I think it's really important. And you brought it up, and I thank you for it. But this idea— Well, that, you paid me well for that. There you go. <laughs> that society, <laughs> in order to be healthy—and and, and Freemasonry, you know, I know you guys spend a lot of time on this in, in your Masonic ritual, that, that balance, the, the, the checkerboard pattern, the, 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 the dual pillars of sun and, and moon, but, but the idea of uh, as above, so below— Duality and balance is really important to a healthy organism, and it gets one of the themes I I try to run with through all the books because I just think that as a society we get into trouble when we fall out of balance. Well, and it's an important theme because we are out of balance, and everybody can see that, but we're not seeing why. I mean, everybody knows about the yin and yang ancient symbol in China. That's what that symbolizes, right? But we don't know what we don't know is all this other stuff that you're bringing up that there were these people. Templars and, and, and the Cathars and all kinds of other people that had these, that believed in balance. And and really, you would have to sort of, if you, once you start to learn about this, you have to start to theorize, well, this is where they butted head with, heads with the church. Exactly, exactly. Because the church was so out of balance, they made it about male and the priest couldn't get married. And, you know, even in the modern Armenian church, which is just the same version of an ancient Roman Catholic church, except with a different pope, the Armenian church allows their priests to be married. And Armenia was the first uh, Christian state in 400 AD. So they have ancient knowledge of balance, right? And even though I think that maybe, I, I don't know much about, I think the Bible is consistent with the one that w- came out of the, the Council of, of Nicaea, but I think that in the Armenian church there's a little bit more balance. I think that there probably needs to go even further back to what was the original <laughs> Christianity. Well, and where were the, where's the Book of Mary? Why can't we bring that back in? Where's the Book of Thomas? Why can't we bring that back in? Well, th- let's, let's, let's go back to the time when the Templars were, were, were just founded and think about what middle, middle uh, medieval Europe was like. You know, if you wanted to cure yourself from a disease, you went to the priest and, 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 and prayed, paid the priest to pray for you. <laughs> but if, if you happened to go and there was a, 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 a woman, uh, a healing woman who lived in your village and through through herbal medicine, she wanted to heal you. No, that was considered a sin. If she was caught doing that, she was she be executed. Yes, as a witch. So right. the idea was that that only only the church could heal you. The Templars came back and they said, "Nuts to that! We just were over in the Middle East, and those guys are really good at medicine. I mean, <laughs> right. those Arab dudes are really good at this stuff, and we we should be teaching our women, our, all of our people, to do it." Well, the church then further demonize women so that, as an example, you know, many people know that the, the, that the woman is associated with, with the moon, just like the man is associated with the sun, the woman is associated with the moon, probably because of the 28-day menstrual cycle coincides with the, the lunar cycle. Well, the idea, so, so the church started demonizing women, so words like lunacy, craziness, comes from the word lunar. Again, wow! I never knew that. Yeah, the <laughs> lunacy must it must be it must be a feminine thing if it's crazy if it's lunar. Okay, yeah. there's no reason for that. But wow. but again, the church started even even the language reflects some of these medieval anti-women beliefs, uh, which again I think that the Templars came back to Europe and just sort of shook their heads and said, "Oh my gosh, are we backwards? We got this all wrong. You got to let the woman in." 
Yeah, well, I, you know, and you, no way. you keep going no talking about the Middle East, and one thing about masonry that I can share is that, you know, the belief of ma- Freemasons, which, again, as you said, probably comes from Templars, and who knows what was before that that's part of the same order, is that the arts and sciences rose in the East and spread to the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there's really something to that, right? Well, this goes back to, the, the, you know, the different sides of our brain. The The left side of the brain is considered the... The, 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 the masculine side, the rational side, the right side of the brain is the female side, the artistic side. Right. And even, again, back to our language, the word sinister is actually the root of that word means left. Again, the left, hmm. the, the left side, the, the feminine side of things reflected in our language is the evil side. It's the dangerous side. We, we want to be male. We want to be male in order to be right, R-I-G-H-T, okay? Yeah. It's, as opposed to left. Um, but I think that the, what you're doing here with the theory of balance is really key because um, there can be an overreaction or an overcorrection to this. And I think we're seeing it a little bit in the modern feminist movement where there are women that sort of want to be militant about this and take the power. And, and then, But my thing is always if you bully the bully, then you're just the new bully. Right? The idea right. is that there's an equality and a balance and a real equality and a real balance that we work together. Neither should have more power than the other. That's what we need to get back to. That's a, a big reason why this world is so crazy and so out of balance. So I, I think intuitively we all would agree with that, that, that you know, again, uh, the organism is most healthy when it's in balance. Yeah, and I think intuitive, we need to take that more into public conversation, which is something you're doing. So I appreciate that. I do want to promote, uh, if you guys like this type of conversation, uh, go see David speak at the Cary Library right here in Lexington. Uh, he's going to be there on March 12th at 7 p.m., right. and you're going to be talking about the Westford Night? Yeah, generally speaking about the evidence that indicates exploration of America before Columbus. Okay, great. And um, uh, I don't want to cut too short, but I, I do have one more thing I want you to share. What are you working on now? What's your next book? You write a book every year. What's the right. one you're working on now? Right, so um, – there's some fascinating artifacts out in Montana that I'm looking at, but um, even more fundamentally, this whole idea, uh, again, religion always gets us in trouble, it seems like, but this whole idea that uh, there's uh, the Antichrist. I'm really looking deep into the Antichrist, going back to um, Aleister Crowley maybe 100 years ago and then even John Dee hundreds of years before that, but this idea that – oh, and you touched on it too, Michael, with the um, – uh, the ancient civilizations, there's a great uh, passage in Genesis 6, which talks about how the uh, the angels, the fallen angels, mated with the daughters of men mm-hmm. to create this whole new race. They called them the Nephilim. They were giants, and they yep. were, may have been uh, reptilian. And, and there are some people to this day who believe that the, that the Nephilim, these offsprings of the, of the angels and the and the fallen, uh, the angels and the daughters of men, that this offspring are, are, are still trying to take over the world. They're still trying to usher in the Antichrist. And you still, pe- still hear people talking about this. And that's why there are some people who are anti-Freemasonry, because they believe that the Freemasons are the agents of these Nephilim. It's, it's crazy <laughs> stuff. But I uh, always so tell people this, that but. if you think that Freemasons are trying to take over the world, you should show up to a Freemason business meeting sometime. <laughs> <laughs> they can barely run a meeting sometimes, let alone take over the world. We can barely organize a breakfast once you said to the <laughs> Yeah, <episode>. exactly. <laughs> but, but we are seeing, like we saw, you know, uh, we saw the vandalism up at America Stonehenge because yeah. people believed America Stonehenge was some kind of pagan site. We saw the 
uh, what I still think is arson at the Masonic Lodge up in New Hampshire. Oh, yeah. Uh, it has not been officially ru- ruled arson, but I have a friend who belongs to that lodge, and they do believe it was arson. And so we are seeing this sort of dangerous stuff, but this this reaction, and people people sometimes... Reaction to truth. Reaction to truth, this fear of of things they don't understand, and, and the use of you know religious doctrine to justify violence is really a scary thing. Yeah, which is crazy, right? Uh, it's literally it's almost the definition of of crazy using God as an excuse to to kill other people or or harm other people in any way. But one thing that you said there I want to bring up that, you know, masonry over the last couple of years because of being a modern organization that needs to survive has gotten much better at marketing and talking about what it is instead of just being the secret thing. Right. And the three pillars of masonry that are talked about publicly now are, are uh, brotherhood, relief, and truth. So brotherhood is means we stand for each other no matter what. We're in this together, which to me is a great thing that we as a humanity need to learn that. Despite all our differences, we're in this together. We're literally on the planet at the same time. So by definition, we're in this together. That's not an opinion. <laughs> Right? And, and, and that's, that's a fact. And that's the work you're doing too, Michael. Yeah, and that's what you're yeah. well, that's why I do it. And right. then relief is charity work, taking care of each other when people need something that we help them. Uh, again, a really important thing for humanity, not just for Masons. We should be there for each other to help those that need help. And then the last one being what we're talking about here, truth, that Masons have always stood for the search of truth. What is truth? And then we can do a whole nother podcast just about that. But I think we did a really good one here talking about different versions of truths and finding out what our historical truth is so that we can we can manifest and create what we want humanity to be in truth from here on, which is where, like you said, where I come into the picture. So uh, you know, I'm a big fan. Uh, uh, you're a good friend of mine, uh, so I'm biased. But I really love your books, and I love your work, and I uh, uh, I encourage all people to explore the question. The really the main thing that you brought up today is that it all the interwoven theme in all your books is about balance, and how do we? And every organism needs to be balanced. How do we find balance in this world that seems unbalanced? How do we get back to that? Well, it's, it's nice when my work. Dovetails with your work, Michael. Sorry, yeah. banging the microphone. Yeah. So I'm like my big, <laughs> got really my big line there. there. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the, the work, the work, uh, the works, the two pieces of uh, uh, works that we're doing do do dovetail, and they do, in some ways, cross pollinate, and it's and we're basically on parallel paths. And and I uh, and I appreciate you having me on today because it was yeah. a lot of fun. So um, the last, the most recent book again is Treasure Templari. You can go to davidbrodybooks.com. To see about all of his books, you can order his books. If you want to see him and get some signed books in person, if you're in the the uh, Lexington, Massachusetts area, David's going to be at the Cary Library, right on the battleground where the Revolutionary War started, right uh, on March 12th at 7 p.m. So um, that's it for today. We're a little over an hour already, and uh, I think that we touched on a lot of good stuff. Great, thank you, Michael. Really enjoyed being on today. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for being here. Okay. Well, that was fun. I enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. Uh, as I said, you know, obviously we joke a lot with each other because David's become a really good friend of mine. And, and like he said at the end, it's because we're on similar paths and, and we think about things in similar ways. We're just trying to find 
the truth about where we've been. So again, for me, my part is to find the truth about where we're going from here and how do we build a balanced and healthy society. Um, That's why I I do Zilosophy. It's why I do the podcast. It's why I wrote the book. It's why I now have this TV show. I'm trying to do everything that I can to bring people back to unity and balance and, you know, finding a way forward together. So um, maybe we'll have David back because he's always got interesting stuff. As you heard, he writes a book every year. So I think we'll have him at least once a year, but maybe even more than that. Uh, So announcements, uh, the Zlosophy TV with Uncle Z and friends about to finish up episode one. I just got final notes and we'll be doing final cuts this weekend. So look for that on YouTube next week, which is like March 2nd or 3rd. It should be posted to YouTube. Really need your help, not only with the with the TV show, but also with the podcast. I'm doing this all on my own and all on my own uh, dime at this point. So anything you guys can do to help, go to the GoFundMe page, look up Zilosophy TV with Uncle Z and friends, and contribute anything you can. Twenty bucks, a uh, hundred bucks, whatever you can do, it all helps continue to bring content like this and the TV show to you. This Sunday. Um, in, which is just a few days from now, March 1st, I'm going to be at the National Golf Expo at the Seaport World Trade Center Boston with Hardy from 98.5 The Sports Hub. Uh, he's a really big fan of philosophy on golf. You know him from the Zolak and Bertrand show on 98.5 in the morning. He also does Sports Hub Golf Club, Club show. So we're going to talk about philosophy on golf, which is going to be a lot of fun. And then uh, Saturday, March 28th, I'm going to be in Nashville, For the week before, I'll be doing, we're raising money. There's a GoFundMe page for that, too, um, which is Bring Zilosophy to Nashville. On the 28th, there's going to be a free uh, public uh, talk. But the week prior, we're trying to go to a bunch of inner city schools in Nashville. I just found out they have one of the zip codes in Nashville has the highest incarceration rate per capita in the country. Uh, So we're going to try and bring some philosophy and some perspective and some awareness to that group in hopes that we can plant some seeds in some of those people that uh, can step up and help change that in their community. That's what that's what this is about. So those talks are going to be, because it's Nashville, going to be musically based, and it's going to be about how we use the concept of musical harmony and musical disharmony to um, learn about how we can be more harmonious in society with each other. So uh, that's it on the announcements. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Julie Manugian, and intern Jude, who's sitting in recording the outro right now. Jude's uh, been a big help. We just met him today. So thanks, uh, Jude, for sitting in for Julie, who's been running in and out of here to a Lex Media staff meeting. We are in the Fred Rothmel podcast studio courtesy of Lex Media. So thanks, as always, for the use of this studio. Um, it's been a big help to making this podcast professional. The theme song that you just heard and you guys love is called Surf. It's by Captain Blackheart, my really good friends, Dino and Irwin. You can find Captain Blackheart on iTunes and Spotify. If you want to know more about me or philosophy, visit philosophy.org. That's spelled like philosophy, but with a Z. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you can just look at your phone and uh, you can spell it from that. If you have any ideas on topics, uh, suggested topics, you want to get in touch with me, you want to tell me that you don't think I'm any good, <laughs> any of that's welcome. You can email me at info at philosophy.org. Um, and talk to me there. Philosophy on Golf, my book, is available on Amazon in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. It's a great gift for the golfer or philosopher in your life. If you want a signed copy for somebody for a gift, um, 
you can email me again at info at philosophy.org and we'll get you set up with a signed copy. I'll mail it to you and we'll get you set up. That's it for today. A lot more um, great podcasts coming up. Next week we got the uh, Armenia Tree Project here, which is a really great organization that plants trees in Armenia, which is near and dear to my heart being Armenian. Um, so anyway, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. Umzi, you're welcome.